Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I am your host, as always, Huzefa. Today, I probably have one of the most special shows, for sure, the most special show of the entire summer. I have on the show with me today a former professor of mine from uh, Northwestern University School of Law. Uh, my favorite professor, my favorite course that I took when I was there. And his name is uh, Professor Steve Drizzen. Now, why this is so special is because if you guys have either seen or heard of the famous Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer, which has been a sensation, then you'll know my professor. Professor Drizzen and the Center, at, uh, the Center for, uh, for Wrongful Convictions, Center on Wrongful Convictions, excuse me, uh, is has been in charge of representing Brendan Dassey. So if you're familiar with the show, Brendan is the nephew of Stephen Avery, who was wrongfully convicted uh, almost, I think it's 10 years ago. I'll double check with my professor. When I was in law school, I worked on the case for a year under Professor Drizzen. And unbelievably, uh, it's, it's so incredible, Brendan Dassey's conviction was just overturned by a federal judge. Uh, just, I believe it was last week. So it's so exciting to have him on. Uh, he's super busy. So without further ado, Professor Drizzen, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to be on your show, Josefa, and, and to reconnect with you uh, after all these years. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks again. And I, I want to, we're going to talk about everything for parents out there listening. I mean, we're going to talk about the case at first, uh, uh, the show and all that stuff. But of course, Professor Drizzen has done so much in, in law and on wrongful convictions. And we're going to also chat with him about how he found his passion, how he figured out what he liked. And maybe if your kids are interested in becoming an, an attorney, we're going to talk about all of that. But first, Professor Drizzen, so I, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be familiar with the case. How did the how did this come about? The conviction being overturned. Well, we began to represent Brendan, as you said, about um, nine years ago, and um, we worked on his case all the way through the state courts of Wisconsin. Uh, we we didn't represent him at trial, but we picked up his case on appeal, and we lost in the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court refused to take the appeal, and so we filed uh, what's called a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in federal court, and the case was fully briefed by both sides, and after a little more than a year, about 14 months, we got a ruling on August 12th, as Friday, and the federal court um, throughout Brendan's conviction on the ground that his confession had been coerced. What did you, what did you think? Were you guys expecting that ruling or was it, were you guys just overjoyed? Um, 
my colleague, uh, Lauren Nyreiter, um, who was also a former student of mine, um, got an email from the court. And it's, it's very sort of anticlimactic, right? You just get an email and it, it, it says the order is granted and it gives you a link to the opinion. Then you have to click on the link to the opinion and open up the opinion. And uh, we both clicked on the link to the opinion right away. And we saw we had a 91-page decision by the federal court. And we quickly turned to the last page to see whether or not we were dreaming. Because the relief in federal court is so difficult. Um, And we had lost um, for so many years that, you know, it was a stunning, stunning victory. And then we read the opinion and we were blown away by um, how well-written and well-reasoned the opinion was. That's amazing. What did you, did you contact Brendan right away? Well, we couldn't get a hold of him right away because the prison has restrictions um, on how much time in advance that you need in order to contact an inmate. Um, but we did contact his mother uh, right away, and she also was overjoyed, and she got the word to Brendan that evening. And what's what's his take on all this? How is he feeling? Well, he has hope. Um, he has hope for the for the first time in a long time. Um, the the series Making a Murderer has also greatly enriched his life. Um, he was pretty much of a lonely, forgotten kid in the state of Wisconsin. And then after the series premiered, he has friends and um, people who are very interested in him and how he's doing from all over the world. So that was a big boost to him. Um, but that can only sustain you so much. He needed to have a legal victory. And this is his first legal victory in almost 10 years. That's so incredible. And he's such like a, he's just such a sweet kid, such a sweet person. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, what do you foresee? What's, what's the next steps? Is, how, how does it work now that you got the, you've got this ruling? So this is a ruling from the federal district court bench and the state has three options. Um, they could do nothing in which case Brendan will be released within 90 days. Um, they could seek to retry Brendan and start those proceedings to retry him in 90 days, or they could appeal this decision to the next level, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. And we are waiting to see what the state is going to do. Um, do you, so, do you have do you, do you have a feeling? Do you have a prediction of, or is just totally in the dark? I mean, I think that most people looking at this think the state is likely to appeal. Um, that will buy them some time, um, and there's a chance they could prevail in the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Um, so, uh, you know. The, the thinking, I suppose, is that 
why should they forego that chance? Uh, but on the other hand, you know, the, the, the case of Brendan Dassey, uh, perhaps even more so than the case of his uncle, has really caused great um, anger and concern and um, upset over the way in which Brendan was questioned by law enforcement authorities. Um, so I don't know what, what the state is going to do, and I'm not in a position to predict, but we'll just have to wait and see. All right, well, best of luck on that. I, it's it's so incredible. It's so amazing that he has hope now. And, yeah, of course, we'll wish you guys the best of luck as you go forward. I know we had talked, uh, when, when I was your student, we had talked about what you did, because I know you worked as an attorney before working at the Center on Wrongful Convictions. And I always thought it was so cool that, because really what, what happens at the Center on Wrongful Convictions, let me just say a little bit about what is happening there. It's they they take on clients for free uh, and, they, and, and they represent them without any charge, without, without any financial charges that they truly believe are innocent. And that's after a lot of review of the, their cases, their case file, and so on and so forth. And they take them on and they try to help them when nobody else is, is able to or willing to help them. And so I remember I asked you once upon a time, I was like, that's so cool because you basically, you're fighting the good fight all the time. And, and that must be incredible. How did you figure out that that's what you wanted to do? Uh, you know, it's hard to know how exactly I got to this place. Uh, I, when I was in law school, I took a course with, uh, Tom Garrity, who was part of the Dassey team and who was the director of the clinic on juvenile law. And that sort of gave me uh, an interest in, in juvenile justice matters. Um, and then I worked in an organization called the Juvenile Law Center uh, in my hometown of Philadelphia for a summer. And that sort of furthered my interest in the subject of juvenile justice. Um, then I graduated law school and I worked at a private law firm for about five years to repay my student loans. And a position opened up to work directly with Tom, representing young people charged with crimes here um, at the Northwestern Law School in the legal clinic. Um, and I took that job, and uh, it's been 25 years um, since I've been here now. Uh, early on in my work with Tom Garrity, I was asked to represent an 11-year-old boy who had confessed to murdering his 83-year-old neighbor. And from the get-go, the young man told me, um, I said I did it, but I didn't do it. Um, and I didn't believe him. I, mean, I, I couldn't imagine how anybody, even a young child, could confess in such detail to the brutal murder of his neighbor um, if he, in fact, didn't didn't do it. And so that sort of sent me on this lifelong odyssey to better understand false confessions um, and to try to seek ways to prevent them. Um, now you've, and you've written a book on false confessions. It's actually a book that Rob Warden, who was the executive director of the Center on Wrongful Convictions, and I edited 
uh, we didn't really write it from start to finish, but the book is called True Stories of False Confessions, and it's a collection of really some of the best articles that delve into the subject of false confessions that we were able to collect. We wrote an introduction and I think a conclusion, but um, it's not a novel or a nonfiction piece of work. It's such a fascinating thing because when I came in to the center to work under you and, and the other attorneys there, I, I didn't know anything about false confessions. I think I, I hope that making a murderer has shined a light on the topic because I, I think that most people mistakenly believe that if somebody is to confess to something, that there's a very low probability that that is a coerced confession. But in fact, I mean, there's a, there's a set of characteristics, circumstances, etc., that can elevate that probability quite high where it's actually a reasonable thing. But I think that I think that people mistakenly, they just can't understand. They always think, well, I wouldn't do that, but oh, well, maybe you would if you understand exactly how these interrogations are, are happening. I mean, do you find that to be the case with most folks who aren't familiar with false confessions? I do. Um, one of the things that I think is important for your listeners to know is that from the beginning of my time at Northwestern, um, Students have been involved in my work at every stage of the process. So in addition to my working to learn about false confessions, I began to collect and analyze and document proven cases of false confessions. And um, that data that I collected became the basis of an article that I worked on with students and which was published um, and much of my research has been worked on with Northwestern law students. And all of it has been aimed at trying to demythologize the confession. Um, to many people, people think that a confession is the most powerful piece of evidence in a court of law, but it's just like any other evidence. It gains its power because the notion that someone would confess to a crime they didn't commit is counterintuitive. But a confession is, is, is just like any other piece of evidence. It can be coerced, it can be contaminated, and it's only as good as the evidence which corroborates it. And one of the first things that struck us when we looked at Brendan Bassey's confession was there was no evidence that corroborated his confession. Um, he didn't lead the police to any evidence that the police didn't already know, and it was filled with mistakes um, that suggested to us it was an unreliable confession. I remember so clearly, I mean, because I watched those, I watched those interrogation tapes, and we did, you know, we, I watched them many times, and there were so many in, in things that didn't match up. With, it's crazy. It, it was just completely crazy. And, and the, not to mention, too, you have people probably aren't not everybody's familiar with the read technique or these interrogation techniques. But when you look at how it's done, the pressure situations that people are in, the duration of the interrogations, and then for cases like Brendan where they're just a kid, it's just so it can just be so overwhelming and terrifying. And it, it, you know, it's it's it, then you can once you understand all that, you can see. I think quite clearly how this can happen, uh, especially to a young young person like that. So when you and I'm, what's also important, sorry, go ahead. What I also want to just say, and that is, is that the the saga of Brendan Dassey began when 
police officers went to his school and questioned him uh, outside of the presence of his parents at school. And that began a process of them continuing to question him without any adult guidance or any, um, you know, counsel throughout the course of four interrogations over two days. And um, so this is an issue that, that parents of students need to be very concerned about um, because law enforcement officers can work with school officials um, to question your children uh, without your permission. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty mind-blowing. Uh, what do you say, if, if there are students or parents listening right now and they're listening to this discussion and they're, and they're saying, man, this sounds so fascinating. This might be something that I want to do one day. I want to work and, and help people uh, reverse these, these convictions. What would you say, like, what, what advice would you give them as far as things to focus on or maybe things to, to how, how can they dig deeper into the topic on their own? Um, well, I, I think one of the interesting things that if I could do it all over again, what I would do is I would get a, um, I would take more coursework in college in the area of social psychology, um, because there's a psychology to what occurs when police officers break down a suspect get them to a place of hopelessness and then manipulate them into confessing to a crime, sometimes to a crime that they did commit, sometimes to a crime that they did not commit. And it would have been uh, helpful for me to have had a bigger grounding in the study of psychology. Um, Law school was obviously um, the next step for me, which helped to awaken my consciousness about this problem. Um, and it helped to shape my career in terms of, you know, what I wanted to concentrate on both in my research and my casework and my reform work. All right. Excellent. This has been so much fun. And by the way, say hi to Laura Nareider. I haven't talked to her in, in ages because when, back when I was in school, she was I know she was working for a private law firm but helping out with the case. And I know she's been an integral part yeah, of, of everything. Yeah, I just want to say that, that the organization that's representing Brendan now is a offshoot of the Center on Wrongful Convictions, which I created um, called the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth which is the only organization in the country that focuses on wrongful convictions by young people and the psychological and developmental reasons why young people are more vulnerable to police pressure than adults. Okay, excellent. If people want to go and find out more information about the work that, that you do, where can they go? They can go to our website at www.cwcy.org, and there's a lot of information about the kind of work we do uh, on that website. All right, excellent. And if you guys didn't get a chance to write that down, don't worry. It'll be in the show notes. You can check out the show notes at www.scalarlearning.com. And as always, if you have questions or comments, 
Email me at huzefa at scalarlearning.com. I got to do one more big thank you to Professor Drizzen for being on the show. He's got a million, billion things going on right now. So I really appreciate him taking the time. And that was super interesting. Hopefully you guys got value out of it too. That's all for today. I'll see you guys next time. Take it easy. Learning, give me that skill of learning.